All right, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Last week, we dealt with the first couple of verses here where Paul began to talk about the blessings of our salvation. Paul had just come off of a very long discussion about sin, as well as uh, speaking to the Jews about the false understanding that they had concerning salvation. And therefore, what Paul did is he gave the answer to both of those points, sin and a false understanding of salvation, and that is simply give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the answer to both the questions. As I said last week, after 64 verses of dealing with sin and and dealing with the bad Jewish doctrine, Paul dropped what I call a soteriological bombshell And then chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, he tells everybody that salvation, or if you will, justification, is available, but it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And through that faith, he tells us in those few short verses that we actually receive his righteousness. We call that imputed righteousness. He takes his righteousness and he imputes that to us who are not righteous in any way, shape, or form. He tells us that it is freely by his grace, has nothing to do with works of any kind. Okay? He tells us how he redeemed us. If you don't know what that word redeem means, it simply means to pay a price. Jesus Christ paid the price for our salvation. Matter of fact, he himself was the sacrifice. It says that in that text that it was his blood that was shed for us. And so very specifically, salvation, he's telling them, is by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, after speaking to the Jews and and wisely using Abraham as his example of faith, remember the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God. Right? And that was credited to him as righteousness. Well, here, Paul made sure that everyone, Jew and Gentile, understood that that was not just for Abraham, or for that matter, it wasn't just for the Jews, but he said being declared righteous by faith is for all who believe. In chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, he says the words it was credited to him, he says they were written not for him alone, him being Abraham, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Well, coming off of those verses there, the very last verses there in Romans chapter 4, Paul uses the opportunity now to encourage the church with what we possess in Christ. In other words, what are the benefits that we receive as a result of being justified by faith? Now, everyone here, I'm sure, understands that the, the greatest benefit for all of us is the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible says very clearly, the wages of sin is what? 
death. Okay, that's not physical death because we're already going to physically die. That happens through Adam. That's spiritual death. It is an eternal separation from God. But he says that it was Jesus who said, I will take your sin upon myself. Jesus says, I will die. I will pay that price. And through our faith in him, our sins are paid for and forgiven. And one day you and I will enter into the throne room of God and be able to spend eternity with him. So that would be called heaven. There's no more sin. There's no more, there's no more pain. There's no more mourning. There is no greater blessing than that. That is an eternal blessing that we receive from Christ. But that being said, not, not everything, not every benefit, not every blessing is future, right? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, in other words, based upon what I just said there at the end of chapter 4, therefore, since we have been justified uh, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those words right there, we have, if you remember what I said last week, um, it is what's called a present indicative, okay? And what it's saying there is, this is a fact that has already happened. It's a fact right now. We have peace with God right now because or through Jesus Christ. You see, folks, without Christ, every single person who walks this planet is actually an enemy of God. They have chosen the world. They have chosen its pleasures instead of the crucified Christ. But once Paul says you have been justified through faith, he says all of that changes. It all changes. We are now reconciled with God. That's that, that's that word that brings forth peace. We are reconciled with God. We are no longer an object of his wrath. We were actually adopted into his family, right? The adoption as sons. That means the peace here, folks, that Paul is actually talking about, it is what we call an objective peace. And simply meaning it's real. It's a very real peace, and it's right now. Okay, we are at peace with God right now, period. And I say that because a lot of people like to use the word peace and they use it subjectively. I am at peace with my decision, right? I am, uh, I am at peace with losing, you know, one of my family members to death. That kind of peace is subjective. That kind of peace is based on nothing but your feelings. That's it. Okay, but peace with God has nothing to do with your feelings. You can feel any which way you want. It rests, that peace is real because it rests in Jesus Christ. Now, notice the last part of verse 1. Actually, I just stated this point. The last part of verse 1 says, this is through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then the very first two words of verse 2 says, through whom or through him. So basically twice in a row, the end of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, through him. So he's saying that every blessing, every benefit that you and I receive is through the mediation 
of Jesus Christ. The only reason, the literal only reason we have peace with God, that you and I have a relationship with him, is because of Jesus Christ. Okay? And I think 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says it very clearly. For there is one God, and there is uno, one mediator between God and men. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. Okay? Here's God, here's man. The only way we can come together, the only relationship, the only connection is Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only mediator. It doesn't matter what you think, what religion it is. He's it. He's it. Verse 2 now says there in chapter 5, he says, through whom we have gained access, so through Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So in addition, he says, to the peace that we have with God, right? He said that in verse 1. Now he says, through him, we have gained access into his grace. We've gained access into a relationship. We've gained access into what you and I simply call salvation. Now, I like the way that Paul uses the word access here. Okay, this, this relationship, if you will, allows you and me access to Almighty God. We now have the ability to approach, come into the presence of Almighty God. Okay, I use this illustration, well, I shouldn't say I did, but I read it last week from Matthew 27, verse 51, and this is the very moment that Jesus died. It says the, the second he died, the second he gave his last breath, the earth shook and the rocks split. And at that moment, the curtain of the Holy of Holy was torn in two from top to bottom. So that's that barrier, if you will, between man and God. Remember that the Holy of Holies is where, quote, God's presence was. That's what they would, how they would use that terminology. We know that God is omnipresent. But the barrier there between God and man symbolized by the, the curtain in the temple, he says it's gone. It's gone. We have direct access to God now. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, or sometimes you might hear it say, we can boldly come before the throne of God so that we may find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Unlike the Old Testament, unlike Catholicism, we don't need a priest. We don't need somebody like that. We can directly go before Almighty God, which is an amazing thing. And that's because of Christ. That barrier is gone. And lastly, in verse 2, we rejoice. Here's another blessing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As believers, you and I, have a confidence. You and I have what we call a surety of eternal life. We can rejoice right now. We can look forward to the very day when we, undeservingly so, we will share in the glory of God. That's amazing. 
right? And the reason for that rejoicing, the reason for that confidence and that we will share is because all of our sin is atoned for. Remember, I've always told you there's one thing that keeps every single person out of heaven. What is it? Sin. All of our sin is atoned for. You know why? We have no worry. Folks, we can rejoice because we don't have to worry because it was Christ who paid for our sin. It was a perfect payment. It was a perfect atonement. It was a perfect redemption. It was just perfect because he himself is sinless and perfect. It was done perfectly. God was propitiated. God said, I am satisfied. I will take your death as payment for our sin. Perfect. If it wasn't, God wouldn't have accepted it. Death has no power over us. As MacArthur said, Satan is a toothless lion and death is a stingless bee. Death is nothing but a door so that you and I will share in the glory of God. Now, as we continue this morning, we're going to be certainly picking up in verse 3, and Paul will continue with the blessings we have in Christ. This might not be the blessing that you're thinking of. But not only do we have peace with God, as I just got through talking about, not only do we have access into his grace, not only can you and I rejoice that one day we will share in the glory of God, but now, he says, in verses 3 through 5, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which, whom, I should say, he has given us. Now, as we drop back into verse 3, uh, let's just be honest here. Uh, generally, for all of us here, our first thought uh, is that we don't rejoice in suffering. <laughs> Some of you might have the word tribulation if you're using the New American Standard. We don't typically think of rejoicing uh, in our suffering or our tribulation. When we think of those words, when we think of those things, we would rather avoid them at all cost. And that's what we try to do. And the reason is because those words, that word suffering, the word tribulation or trouble, there are different words we can use there, it literally means to be under pressure. You can think of, think of a, 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 um, an olive where it's just crushed for the oil, every bit of the oil, or a grape which is smashed into an oblivion to get all of the juice out. We don't like that kind of hardship. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't think about that. We go, oh man, I, I don't want that kind of stuff. Our initial reaction to these kind of difficult circumstances is often things like stress, anxiety, sometimes maybe even frustration. How many times have we seen people get mad at God? I've never quite understood that, but there are people who get mad at God through circumstances. Oh, come on, Lord, I, I, I read my Bible every day last week. I was even in church on Sunday morning. I, I, Wednesday night, I sent my kids to the church down the street because they have Awanas. And we can keep adding to that list whatever you want. 
Why am I not being rewarded? That's what people think. And by the way, there's a lot of problem in that thinking. Don't ever think that. People thinking that God owes you something. God doesn't owe us anything. But listen, folks, if I put a bunch of Christians in one room all together and I ask the question, how many of you want to grow? How many of you want or desire to mature in your walk with the Lord? How many of you want to know or understand God even more than you do now? How many of you want to look back one day and see that God has changed who you were to who you are now? If I asked that question, Lord willing, everybody would raise their hand. If you wouldn't, you've got a big problem. The issue at hand, though, is how do we get from one point to the other, right? How do we get there? Most people are like, well, you know, I would just really like to pray about it and have God answer my prayer, <laughs> right? Makes things real simple. As if you just wake up one day realizing that you were sanctified in your sleep. How awesome would that be, right? That's the prayer that I want God to answer. Woohoo! I'm this new person when I wake up in the morning, sanctified in my sleep. You're all of a sudden this godly individual that everybody wants to talk to, everybody wants to be like, everybody's looking up to. That's what we all want. The other night in our men's group, I was talking to Mark actually, uh, I mentioned praying for patience. Praying for patience. Listen to me, that is a prayer that God will answer yes. Okay? God answers every prayer, by the way. It's either yes, no, or not right now. That is one where God will answer yes. But it will not be poof. You are now a patient person. God is going to allow situations in your life where you're going to be tested. And so will your patience especially for those who have little children. This is similar to what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Now, as you know here in Romans chapter 5, what does he say? He says, we rejoice in our suffering, right? In James, he says, you know it, consider it pure joy, there's that word, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith, that's what a trial is, is the testing of your faith. It basically just defines the word. The testing of your faith develops perseverance, which we'll get into in just a minute. Perseverance, he says, must finish its good work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wow. That's the desired result, right? That's why he says, consider it pure joy when you come into these trials. Rejoice in trials, because he says that's the end result. Now, if you're still wondering, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. Don't be that person who says, Lord, I can't believe you didn't reward me. I read my Bible 
last week, right? He doesn't say that. He says, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. What's this? What, what is this about? This isn't the Christianity I was promised, right? Don't, be, don't, don't get into that. He says, actually, rejoice. Doggone it, there's that word again. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We keep being told to rejoice. Rejoice. Consider it joy. Rejoice again. In our text in Romans, it's rejoice in our suffering. Now, this is not, this is not just some stoic endurance of our troubles. One commentator calls it a, this rejoicing, he calls it a spiritual glorying. He says, a spiritual glorying in afflictions because we know that there's an end product. As I just read to you in both those passages, he says there's an end product. Here in verse 3, it begins by saying, with rejoicing in our sufferings because what? We know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance. It goes from one to the next. Suffering is a good thing, he says, because it brings forth perseverance. That word, perseverance, or maybe you have it translated endurance, it means to bear up under. Okay? It's an, it's an active steadfastness, or you might call it a, a constancy. It is a staying power in the midst of difficulty. If you want to say, you can say it is the opposite of regeneration or uh, uh, resignation. It's the opposite. It's a stick to I'm going to persevere through this. See? Now, when it comes to suffering producing perseverance, as it says, I do not think this is your average everyday stuff that mankind deals with. Okay? I would agree with 1 Peter 4, which I just read a couple minutes ago. I think it's all the stuff, it's all the garbage that Christians will deal with because they're faithful to God. It's not just everyday stuff that happens to anybody. It's because of your faithfulness that these things will come along. Peter calls it participating in the sufferings of of Christ. The New Living Translation translates it about being insulted for being a Christian, being mocked for being a Christian. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, you know, persecuted. All who desire to to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, I tell you, if you're bold, folks, and living faithful, this should be expected. If you don't get it, that means you need to examine yourself, maybe. Just a thought. Now, this will definitely, persecution will definitely fall under the, the heading of suffering. As you guys know, I mentioned on occasion, people overseas, our brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries are dealing with this every single day. Every day. 
Listen, folks, uh, suffering or persecution, dealing with what the world will throw at us, and Lord knows it throws a lot at us, basically means, you know what? You're probably doing the right thing. If the world hates you, as Christ said that it would, that's telling us that we are on the right track because we are honoring the Lord in what we do and what we say. Many people, I get it, I understand, want to shut down. But if you're being opposed because you're holding to what we talked about this morning, a biblical worldview, you're going to be probably beat up. You're going to be slandered. You're going to be called bad names. Typically, that means you're probably doing the right thing. See? Now, with that being said, the production of perseverance is a wonderful thing because we need it. We don't like the suffering part, okay? We, we get it. But we need it. We need perseverance. When it's us, when it's you and me against the world or against our culture, or against our society, we need to possess a stick to We don't need to be backing down. We need to stand firm. Folks, we're not up there standing for an opinion. If that's all you're doing, then you probably get what you deserve. But we're standing upon the truth of the Word of God. We're not standing for politics. Please remember that. If we're going to get mocked and called every name in the book, you're a something-phobe. Everything's a phobe these days. It should be because you're standing on God's Word, because that's truth, and that's why you can be confident. I don't care about your, I mean, I do care about your politics. I don't care about your politics. I don't care about your opinion. I don't care what you think. I don't care what degree you have. I can stand firm because I'm on the word of God. I'm on the rock. I am immovable. If you want to debate me because I'm standing on truth, come debate me all you want. Because it's not, I'm not arrogant because it's God's word that I'm standing upon. I'm going to win. And even if you don't think so, I know I'm standing on truth. See? Because that's what we need to be standing on. Well, not only will suffering produce perseverance in our lives, but in turn, verse 4 says, perseverance will then produce character. Character. Do you see what God's doing here? It should be no surprise at what's happening in this world right now and how it hates us because in turn, God is using that to build us up spiritually. God is using those things to build Christians up spiritually. If we are being faithful to God in the midst of trouble, it's deepening our character, strengthening our character. If there's one person who understands going through these kinds of things, it would be Job. (laughs) Nobody wants the life of what Job went through. But Job understood this. Job said in chapter 23, verse 10, speaking of God, He knows the way that I take. When He has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You want, If you will, when it's all said and done, I will be as gold. 
through what Job went through, it was transforming him. It was building his character, right? Folks, that's what character is. Character is a proving. It is a proving of genuineness. And to prove that to you, the Greek word here for character was used in testing metals to determine their purity. (laughs) That's what the word came from. You're testing the metals to determine their purity. When Christians go through suffering or trials or tribulation, which calls for us to persevere, that perseverance produces what the NAS calls a proven character. It's the same point. Even if you've watched these shows on TV where they're melting down steel and they're scraping off what we call the droth or all the impurities, that's what they have to do, see? God allows this through suffering and then perseverance to build our character. This is, it's like the foundry worker who uses an extreme heat to melt down the metal so he can get rid of those impurities. God uses suffering, God uses tribulation to do the same, right? Character, build character. Lastly, in verse four, perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Now the word hope there is not talking about a baseless optimism. It is talking about a joyful and confident expectation of our eternal salvation. Notice the word that I used. It is the word hope, but it is a confident expectation of our eternal salvation. And you know what that does? That brings us full circle, folks, because if you go back to verse 2, it says we rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God. Listen, folks, it's our hope in God and his promises, our eternal destiny being the greatest of all. We start with hope and we end with hope. And in that process is what we call sanctification. It's the building of our character, right? This is why verse 5 begins with, and hope does not disappoint us. We will not be disappointed because our future glory with the Lord will not go unfulfilled. You see, this is, folk, this is the difference between hoping, right, and having a hope. There's a big difference in the word hope and having a hope. Oh, I sure hope I get a free day off work tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> There's a difference between that and having a hope. Hoping is nothing more than being positive. It's nothing more than being optimistic, which has no effect whatsoever on the outcome. None. Having a hope is centered on God and his promises, and it is grounded in reality. In other words, it's, it's like a guarantee. I have a hope. It's like a guarantee. It's similar to how you've heard me say many times, our faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed, right? It's no different than our hope. 
What are you hoping in? Right? Hope becomes more of an assurance because it's established in God Almighty. I don't just have some optimistic viewpoint. I'm a very positive person. My glass is half full. So what? That doesn't change anything. It change your attitude, but that doesn't change reality. I think back to Romans chapter 4. He's talking about Abraham here in verses 20 and 21. Abraham, he says, being fully persuaded. Actually, you know what? Back up one. Verse 20. He did not waver. Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He did not. But he says he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. Listen, here's why. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Okay? His confidence was in God's ability to achieve what he promised. Okay? It's the same thing with our hope and why I said it's like an assurance. It's like it's a guarantee because it's based on God. Our hope is in God. God doesn't fail. God doesn't lie. God is not going to change our mind or his own mind about our eternal destiny. It's grounded in that. That's why we have a hope. That's why we can use that word hope, not like, boy, I sure hope I get to heaven. We possess a hope because it's grounded in the death of Christ, which I said earlier is a perfect death, a perfect redemption, a perfect atonement. It's not based on us. You wouldn't have any hope if it was based on us. Neither would I. See? So we're blessed with a hope. We rejoice in hope because of who it's based in. But also because... Verse 5 again, because God has poured out his love into our hearts. Did you catch that? We possess the divine love of God. The most convincing testimony that we have is that God loves us, and he tells us he's placed that love in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Adam Clark, his commentator, on this, this subject of love here, he says, it is, a, it, it is scattered abroad. In other words, he said, it is filling, it is quickening, it is invigorating all of our powers and our faculties. This love is the spring of all of our actions. It is the motive of our obedience. The principle through which we love God, we love him because he first loved us. And we love him with a love that is worthy of himself because it springs from him. It is his own, or if you will, it is his own love. And every flame that rises from this pure and vigorous fire must be pleasing in his sight. He says it consumes what is unholy. It refines every passion and appetite, sublimes the whole and assimilates all to itself. And we know that this is the love of God as it differs widely from all that is earthly and all that is sensual or feelings-based. That kind of love poured out in us, that tells us we are His. We are His. 
That may surprise some of you because you know what? None of us are lovable. None of us are lovable. But there was a certain love that God had even before he died for us. Right? What does John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There was a certain love God had to everybody. If God loved us enough, folks, to die for us by sending Jesus to die for us, as I said earlier, why we were an actual enemy of God? We were an enemy of God. And he paid the price for our sin. How much more does he love us now? The answer is kind of combined with that in verse 5, enough to give us his Holy Spirit upon salvation. God didn't leave us hanging. We need him. He's leaving this earth. He's giving us, he gave us his Holy Spirit. He used his Holy Spirit to pour out that love in us. The moment we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God, through his Holy Spirit, indwells us, indwells every single believer. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 makes this clear as day. We receive the Holy Spirit as a seal of our guaranteed inheritance, right? Ephesians 1, verse 14, right? Our guaranteed inheritance. Remember the Holy Spirit is giving us as a deposit? Guaranteed what is to come. And then he uses the Holy Spirit to bless us even more. Now, by pouring out the love of God, he says, within us. Through all this, the Holy Spirit produces in the believer an immediate and overflowing consciousness that he is the object of God's redeeming love. I don't think about that often. Do you ever think about that? That you are the object of God's redeeming love. You are the one that he looks to and says, Christ says, you're worthy to die for. And he did. Do our blessings in Christ begin when we die? No, they don't. They begin in the exact moment that we place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll add a little bit to that the next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the many blessings that we have. It is uh, an amazing thought to know that you think of Romans 5.8, but you demonst- God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. You had a certain love for us. For lack of terms, it's a limited love, but it's a certain love for us even before you died for us. So now that love is even greater. That's amazing, Lord, to the point that we were enemies at enmity with you, and yet Christ died. And not only are you giving us the greatest of all, and that is eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the glory of heaven, but even on this earth, you've given us your Holy Spirit, you've poured out your love, you have, you have made peace. We have peace with you. We're not enemies anymore. We're, we're at peace with you. We've gained access 
into your grace and so much more. It's amazing, Lord. You did it all, and yet you continue to bless us who've done nothing and who are undeserving. Lord, help us to know that. Help us to uh, be reminded of the fact that we are undeserving of every single thing, but yet you just continue by your grace to bless us, to provide for us, to love us, and to show us mercy that uh, we don't deserve. Lord, when we think of that, I pray that we would honor you because of that. Honor you by living for you. Honor you by being faithful to you and acting like the child of God we are called to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.